see, I'm not saying these are this is these these three principles are the only principles we find in Scripture about worship. But these things were particularly applicable for them, and I'd say they're very relevant for us. And so you can think of it kind of like a three-legged stool. And so we each of these is critical. Each one of these principles is needed for us to to gather together properly. And so take one of those legs off, and it falls over. So these are the principles. One, edification. We talked about this last week. Edification, second, order, and third, authority. So those, that's what we'll look at together. So first, the principle of edification. First leg of the stool here, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now just pause there for a moment. There are, there are, there are certain segments, and I don't know what your, I know some, most of, a lot of you what your church background is, and I don't know anybody that comes from like a Quaker background or a Plymouth Brethren background, but if you do, there are, there are those and there are some other segments of the wider body of Christ that, that latch on to verse 26 and they kind of extrapolate that into give the form to all of, their, all of their worship together. And so they look at worship of Barak and say, that's not New Testament worship. That's not it. That New, New Testament worship is free form. It, it, it's anyone can speak, anyone can say anything, everyone brings their contributions and whatever, whatever they want. And so you have, like Quaker churches function this way. Uh, even today, they, they'll sit in absolute silence until someone is led by the Spirit to say something. And so they might sit for an hour, they might sit the whole service, and nobody says anything. So that's, that's how the services are conducted. You have Plymouth Brethren churches, they have no pastor, and so People just share in the service as they feel led. And we'll teach and we'll pray, we'll sing, whatever. And so, listen, there's nothing wrong with what we're seeing in verse 26 in terms of people bringing contributions. That's not his point. He's not scolding them in verse 26. He's not commending them. He's describing. This is what's happening there. And so we have to be careful, like any place, but to take a verse like this and just say, okay, well, this, this is the standard, this is the ideal. He's... He's not holding this up as the, as the model to emulate. So we've, we've said that. So this is a unique time. This is the church in its infancy. And so the, the, you have the presence of these sign gifts that we, again, we've talked about that are not still in function today. So the New Testament's not yet complete. God's still giving new revelation to the church through the apostles and through the prophets. And so there, there needed to be space within their liturgy, within their order of service, we would say, for those with new revelation to speak, for them to contribute, to make that contribution. That's obviously very different from today. But in Corinth, we we find people eagerly using their gifts in the gathering. That's great, but it's not for the right reasons. We talked, we started the the why question last week, and why we gather, and and this is where he's ties, this is where it connects in verse 26. So some were apparently, again, using it for this sort of public display of their spirituality. Others were treating the gathering, gathering like it was just a private worship moment. They just happened to be in the same place. The clarity was lacking. Confusion abounded. Truth was being obscured. And so people, people aren't growing. They're not being built up. And so he says, and this is the exhortation at the end of verse 26, let all things be done, what? For building up. For building up. This is the... Again, the same emphasis we saw last week in the first part of the chapter. This needs to be your aim when you gather together on the Lord's Day. Make edification, building one another up, the priority when you come together. 
This is, this is critical. It says in verse 31, the goal must be that all may learn and all be encouraged. And so worship, when we come together, brothers and sisters, it's not just about self-expression. It's not, it's not about personal enjoyment or personal fulfillment. Now, do we enjoy it? Are we fulfilled when we come? Sure, I hope. But worship is about edification. It's about building one another up. It's mutual encouragement as we speak and as we hear the truth of the gospel and we have it applied to our hearts and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're, that's what we're aiming for when we gather together. Was this, as we talked about this last week, was this more of a conscious aim for you as you, as you came here this morning, as you drove here? And walked across the field, Eric, as you as you came into this gathering, are you thinking, I am here. I want to edify my brothers and sisters. I want to build the body up as we come together using the gifts in my participation. I want to see others built up in my conversations, in the way I sing, in the way I hear the word and receive it, in the way I serve. Whatever I do, I want others to be built up. This is this is the first. This is the first principle that he lays out for them and certainly applies for us. The second one is this. It's the principle of order. Order. We see it summed up at the very last verse of this this chapter. So look down at verse 40. But all things should be done decently or properly and in order. Now, we'll back up into verse 27 and following there. and, And so he's going to work that principle out in very practical ways in most of this chapter. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And so... In Corinth, there were three groups of people in particular that he is, is talking about here and applies this to. These people that are speaking when they should be silent. And so he ties all three of them together, uses the same vocabulary as he addresses each of these groups. So you see the first group in verse 27. These are the, those that are speaking in tongues. And so they're making all kinds of, of noise and confusion in the gatherings, they're talking in different languages at, at the same time. Nobody's interpreting what's being said, so nobody understands what's being said. And I'm going to try to pull this off with the help of a few. I asked a few volunteers, and it was very last minute, so this morning. I asked a few folks uh, if they could help me with something. And uh, we've, we've, so we haven't rehearsed this, but we're gonna, we've got a few folks that want to be of encouragement to you, give a little edification to the church family. And so a few folks that I've talked to, stand up please and um, they've 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 just they've rehearsed this I'm sure in the few minutes prior to the service but they're going to share a word with you today and I want us all to be blessed and encouraged by this so if you guys could say this together on the count of three one two three Amen. The Germans, they just have the longest way of saying it. I know. <laughs> Why say in one word what you can say in eight words? Or, yeah. But actually, I have like one word that says eight words. But yeah. No, did, were you blessed? Was that encouraging to you? <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, was it particularly edifying to you? Maybe a couple of you, maybe the people sitting next to you who actually knew what you were saying, uh, you, you, uh, you, you could pick that up. This is what they were saying. Believe that Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. At least that's what I asked them to say. They might have said, why did the preacher ask me to do this right before the service? Or something like that. I, I, won't, I don't know that. I don't know curse words in Creole or anything like that. So, um, but, but 
you 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 have you have this sort of in, in just a few seconds this confusion lack of clarity again interesting but there's nothing edifying about that but th- th- this is the kind of thing that was happening on large scale there in Corinth in their gatherings and so Paul gives some very sensible and and, and reasonable apostolic advice here so you see in verse 27 if any speak in a tongue let there be only two or, or at most three and each in turn not too many tongue speakers in the gathering that's what he's saying and, and not everyone speaking at the same time so we can't hear what, what's being said. Then he goes on, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So he says, and we want, we want someone to interpret what's being said so we can understand it. And if, if there's no one there with that gift of interpretation so we can, we can understand what's being said, then just, just sit quietly and pray. Talk to God. And so it's all, it's, it's all very reasonable. <laughs> we gave, even though a little illustration, we, we kind of get the sensibleness of this, this instruction to them. All things should be done decently and in order. Not Listen, it's not order for order's sake. It's not order, it's not order just so that we can, we can feel, feel better and the, the certain, some with a certain personality are just more satisfied. It's order for the sake of love. It's order for the sake of clarity. Order for the sake of understanding. It's order for the sake of edification. That's why he's, why he's giving them this charge. So that's the first group, the tongue speaker. Second group, you have the prophets. Again, remember, at this time, there's still new revelation that's being given to the church. The New Testament isn't yet complete. And so God is graciously speaking and sending His Word through prophets to the church. It's a, it's a wonderful ministry, a wonderful mercy of God that He's speaking to His people in this way. And so He's revealing more and more to His church about Christ and His work and what He accomplished in particular, connecting that to the Old Testament. And so it's vital for these churches to have space in their, in their public gatherings for these prophetic words. They needed it. And they needed to be understood. They needed to be heard. These were life to the church. Good. And so, so there, there needed to be order, though, as the prophet spoke, so this could be heard and understood. And, and apparently that was lacking in Corinth. They, 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 it seems that things were kind of pretty wild during these prophetic moments. And there was little restraint shown by the prophet. So one prophet says, hey, I've, God's given me a message and he's talking for a few minutes and someone else just stands up and interrupts him and says, hey, you know, God's given me a message and then another and another and they're talking over one another. And, and it's sort of chaotic and, and, and apparently some of the prophecies actually contradicted one another. another. And so, they're, they're, or maybe they contradicted previously revealed truth. And so, some prophecies aren't from God at all. They're just, they're, they're made up. So Paul gives some, again, some just very sensible, very reasonable instructions to bring. Again, he's all things to be done decently and in order. He's bringing that together and he says, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Let others then weigh what is said. And so, so the words of, of those who claim to be prophets, they had to be carefully evaluated or weighed, judged they said had to be judged in light of everything God had already spoken 
and revealed in Scripture in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Otherwise, the so-called prophet could just pass off other ideas, false ideas, as, as if this was a word from the Lord. This kind of thing happens all the time today, doesn't it? I mean, any, any charlatan with a winsome personality and the gift of gab and a YouTube account can, can stand there and make a video and say, hey, God told me this and he spoke to me and, and, and lead people astray, claim this special insight. And so that may have been happening there in Corinth. And so Paul, Paul seems to be saying, this has to be weighed. There's probably a, a group of, of church leaders, of elders, or maybe those, as he talked about in chapter 12, verse 10, those who had the, the gift, a spiritual gift of discerning between spirits, distinguishing spirits. But there, were, there were these people who, who, who would weigh what the prophets spoke. Weigh them against Old Testament Scripture. Weigh them against apostolic teaching. Weigh them against Christ's teaching. Weigh them against previous revelation through the prophets. And so then look at verse 30. Again, so you have that. They're weighing what they said. And apparently, again, the prophets, they, they're kind of competing for airtime in the assembly. And they're, they're wanting to speak. And they're, so they're speaking over one another. They're interrupting one another. Uh, instead, of, instead of providing edification and encouragement as prophecy was intended to provide, this was God's, God's gift to the church. Instead of that, it's fueling frustration and friction and, and division within the church. So Paul says in verse 30, there's no need for that. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. Why? So that all may learn and all be, be, may be encouraged. He's saying there's no rush. Just, just be patient. There's no need to interrupt. Take your turn. You'll be able to, then we'll be able to hear everyone properly. Like, think of a children's, you know, class at school you know raise your hand children <laughs> just just be patient when you're called then stand up and speak so everyone can hear you don't all shout out at once this is this is just very common sense sensible reasonable instruction that he's giving here now i think some of them are probably ready to object based upon what he says next so you know when the word of the lord comes to me and the spirit speaks to me i need to speak now i need to say it now I can't, it can't wait. I can't wait. Paul says, no, not so. No, you can, you can wait. Verse 32. The spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. You know what he's saying? I mean, there was a common thought then, and I would say this is pretty common even today in, in certain circles, that, that this view that the spiritual gifts are simply like these gifts like this or these unrestrained utterances that we have no control over, that, 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 that the speaker has no restraint and it just comes out and it just kind of overtakes you and we 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 you can't help yourself and there's this eruption of uncontrollable speech that's how the pagan prophets function in Corinth by the way that's how prophecy was done there so Paul's saying though you you can control yourselves the spirit the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets you you shouldn't be out of control you can wait a few minutes if the message is from God it can wait till the other one is finished speaking so what he's saying, and here's the basis, and this is where we get real connected to us. He said, this is why orderliness should be present in the assembly. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He's not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of chaos and disorder. God is a God of order. 
We see his order in creation. We see his order in the providence that governs our lives in the universe. We see his order in redemption. Everything planned out. His order. And so it follows then that our worship of this God of order should reflect that order, this peaceful order when we gather. He, 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 isn't, he isn't glorified by people shouting others down or interrupting one another in the assembly by voices that no one can possibly understand. The Corinthians, they thought, they recognized that this is the powerful working of the Holy Spirit and we see it in the chaos of our worship services. But Paul's saying, that's, that's, that's not reflective of God. The fruit of the Spirit what is, we know some of the things it is. We've walked through this recently. It's love, peace, patience, wait, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. The, the, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So he has concluded that all things, all things should be done decently and in order. Tongue speakers, prophets, those, as we've talked about, what we believe are these non-functioning gifts and ministries today, hey, we're fine with his instructions to them. It's this third group that we choke on a little bit. You can hear the gasp as we read it, read it earlier even. Women. Women. This is the third group that he addresses. This is where I'm liable to get myself in trouble. Um, no, what is he? We've, we've seen this. If you've been with us in this study, we've already seen him address what was a, a, a concern, a problem there in the church at Corinth. And the problem was with the, the way that some of the women were functioning in the worship services at the church there. It's in the, the, the public gatherings. And so some were apparently taking these unwarranted leadership roles in the gathering. And so that's that's kind of the what we've seen already. And so we see in verse 33, as as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission as the law said. What does he mean here? I don't know. What does he mean? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> One thing that's clear, we can say what he doesn't mean. And I think we, can, we need to say that up front, lest there be any misunderstanding. He's not commanding an absolute and permanent female silence in the church gatherings. We know that. And there, I know there are some who've actually interpreted it this way and they try to work that out in, in the local church even today, but there's no solid textual support for that because that would make Scripture contradict itself even within this own letter. And so in, back in chapter 11, you remember when he's giving instructions to women. He, in, in, again, in the context of the Lord's Day gathering, he said in chapter 11, verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. In verse 13, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And so it's clear that in the church in Corinth, some women prayed and prophesied aloud in the church gatherings. And, and so they're not totally silent, and they, they, they spoke, and Paul doesn't prohibit them from speaking, from praying and prophesying in the gatherings. What he says in chapter 11 is not that they shouldn't speak, but he says, if they stand to pray and prophesy, they need to have their have their heads uncovered or have their heads covered. And so, it would be a little bit foolish for him to say in chapter eleven that women may pray and prophesy, and then in chapter fourteen to say, no, 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 they can't can't speak at all. He 
has, has Paul completely lost the plot as he's writing this letter? It's just getting too long and he forgot what he wrote earlier. I don't think that's what we have. And remember, what's his primary concern? What's the first principle? Edification in the gathering. If, if that's his concern, that everyone should learn and be edified, I don't think that given that context, it, it seems unlikely that he would essentially say, you know what, women, stay silent, stay confused until you get home. Just, just wait. You can be confused now. It's fine. I don't think that's what he'd say. So we have to look at the statement in its context. And when we do, I think the explanation becomes clearer. And so there are three groups of people in this chapter, remember, that Paul tells to, quote, remain silent. The tongue speakers, the prophets, and the women. Now, it's the same Greek, same, same word in every case. It's the same tense of the same verb in each of these, with each of these groups or the languages intentionally tying this together. And so he's saying to each of these groups, if your speech, whatever it is, tongue speaking, prophecy, women, if it doesn't edify the entire group, then keep silent. When you get together, do everything for edification and for and not for disorder. This is what he's communicating. So the context suggests that there were women who were disrupting the service in some way, and just, just as the shouting prophets and the tongue speakers who were talking over themselves were, and, and that disruption was hindering edification and order in the assembly. And so, now did Paul mean, when he was talking to the tongue speakers, that, that they were always to be kept quiet? No tongue speaking allowed. That they were never allowed to speak again at all. No, he didn't say that. He told them to remain silent, but... What he simply meant is in certain circumstances, if there's no interpreter and if others are already speaking, in those circumstances, you need to keep quiet. And did he mean that all the prophets were to stay silent all the time? No. He simply said that in certain circumstances, in specific situations, if prophecy uh, comes to someone else, uh, then he or she is to be temporarily silent, to stay quiet. So in that same sequence, in that same flow of argument and discussion, he says that women should remain silent in the church. Does that mean they're always to remain silent? Never to hear a peep out of the female? No. It means that in certain circumstances, in certain situations, women are not to speak. Now, what are those situations and what are the circumstances? That's the challenge of understanding this. I think we can all agree up to this point. And there are different ideas on what he, what he means. I think in the context, and this is where most... Most conservative commentators agree that this is what the situation is and what he's addressing here. The situation is this. Is it's, he's talking about when those prophecies are being weighed and evaluated by the church leaders. In that situation, when the leaders are looking at a particular prophecy and say, is this a message from God or is it not? This was very common. Because you had these prophets that are standing up and proclaiming. This was happening in their gatherings. And in those circumstances, in that situation, well, I think what Paul's saying is women are to be kept, are, are to remain silent. Don't interrupt. That's, that's a task for the church leaders. That's a teaching function. That, that is an authority function for those appointed men in your church. I think that's what he's saying. That's the immediate context here for this exhortation. So apparently some of the women were interrupting that evaluation process. And, and it was what? It was hindering edification. And it was causing confusion and bringing disorder in the assembly. And it's in those circumstances he's saying the women were to remain silent. So Paul gives some very reasonable, sensible instructions to these women, to these wives. 
verse 35. We see this. If you have a problem with the decisions that are being made and how the weighing and evaluation of prophecies is being done by the leadership, talk to your husband at home. Let him represent you, the family, to to the leaders in the gathering and that time of prophetic evaluation. Don't, don't, don't disrupt it. That's what he's simply saying. I'm not saying that's the only possible interpretation of these verses. And there are other, other ideas. It's a tricky text. There are some that say this doesn't even belong in the, in the passage. It doesn't fit the context and we should skip it. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is a, this is, it fits. It's a reasonable interpretation. One that I think honors the context best. All that to say, I would just say what Paul is doing here. He's working out verse 40. All things done decently, properly, and in order. And he's giving some very sane, very practical, very reasonable apostolic advice and instruction. Restraint, self-control, order, edification. These are the things that drive you out of love for one another, out of the desire to see the church and see your brothers and sisters built up in Christ and for the glory of God to provide a true reflection of this God who is a God of order, not, not of chaos. Out of all of this, all things should be done decently and in order. Some worship, worship that is pleasing to God and is good for everyone in the church, it embraces an orderliness to it. It does. It embraces the order. What we see here, a mutual respect of, of, of self-control that we who have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit for the good of the body, we are gifted people, every single person in this room, but we give space to one another for their use of gifts in the church. We're not stepping on one another. No, there's, there's order in the way that we serve and the way that we gather. We're not demanding. We're not pushy. We're not... Stomping and trampling over one another. It embraces the order of men and women. Not circumventing, but honoring and celebrating the, the gender differences and in, inappropriate in, in and biblical patterns of leadership and submission in the church and in the family. So this is this is good. This is just order that's designed to show to to, to draw attention to God and to and to promote the the best possible way for us to, to edify and build one another up. That's what he's saying. Again, not order for the sake of excellence in everything we do as a church. It's not order for the sake of satisfying a certain personality type. It's not order for the sake of tradition and holding on to those. It's order for the sake of clarity. Order for edification. Order for the sake of love. That's what he's, that's what he's calling it. So the principle of edification, the principle of order, and then third and finally, the principle of authority. We look, let's look quickly, verse 36, 39 here. Remember how he started the whole section? I'm thinking back to chapter 12 now. He, he, he started with the question, essentially, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be, quote, spiritual? So the Corinthians, who we've seen, had this rather shallow, sensational, uh, kind of, self-focused understanding of spirituality and and they prided themselves in their spirituality so to them it meant kind of showing off and and shouting and making noise and confusion and and emphasizing the gifts the extravagant gifts and spectacular gifts that we have that's kind of how they view that's the mark of the truly spiritual person so paul has been correcting them 
and that thinking throughout this section, and he does it again here, and he calls them back and says again, spirituality, this is what it manifests itself as. It's order. It's consideration of other people. It's, it's self-control. It's, it's love. It's doing everything to edify. And then here, it's, it's also glad-hearted submission to the Lord's authority. So submitting to the Lord's authority. And so, see in verse 36. There's a little sting here in verse 36. There's some, there's some barbs in these questions. Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, we're saying, do you, do you think you have this unique, special, and privileged status as church? Do you, do, you, do you think you have insights that no one else has? Are you the only church in all of Christendom? Are you the mother church of all the others? This is kind of what he's, what he's how he's poking them here. And so, the, listen, that, that attitude, that's... If we're honest, and with a little self-reflection, we can say we, we struggle with this too, don't we? We wrestle with this. This is what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery. It's thinking, thinking that newer is always better, um, that, that we've arrived in ways that nobody else has, nobody else before us has. We've, we know better, we do better, we are better. This is kind of the attitude of the Corinthians, and Paul is calling them on. So he goes on, verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, listen, the Corinthians very much thought that they were spiritual, very spiritual. If anyone thinks he's spiritual, if he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Seeing the, the mark of being truly spiritual, having God's spirit, it's not those external appearances. That's not what you should be looking to. It's this. It's not, it's not showy displays of spectacular gifts. It's understanding that you're under the Lord's authority. That you're under His authority, and therefore it's accepting the authorities of those who are set over us in the Lord. Paul, you're, you're not actually speaking for God. You aren't truly spiritual if you reject the teaching of one of His apostles. And you don't take it as the Lord's command. So the Spirit's work, it's seen in our submission to the Lord's authority, to His commands it's not in novelty it's not in innovation it's not any of those things it's entrusting obedience to what he's commanded the lord now listen he's not laid out for us every particular detail about how the worship service should be conducted and all of that and there, there's room for flexibility there's a room for a right kind of contextualization and, and adjustment but you know between different ages of the church and 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 different cultures and context and and, and, and all of that, that, that kind of diversity is beautiful and it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's flexible in that way. But we need to understand as we worship and as we gather as a church that we are under the Lord's authority. We're submitting to His, to, to a apostolic teaching, doctrine, commands. And that's, a, that's a serious thing. We're not just making this up. It's not just ours to to adapt as we see fit. We, we are under authority. As so he gives us warning in verse 38, here's what's at stake. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. So again, there's an interpretation of this. I think what he's saying is a blatant disregard for the Lord's commands. It's going to be, it's going to lead to being disregarded by the church. That's how I take it. The very, this because the very thing the elitists in Corinth, those super spiritual ones, the very thing that they wanted was to be recognized. 
to be recognized as mature spiritual people. This is what they crave. And he's going to say, that's the very thing you're going to be denied by the church community if you reject the Lord's commands. If you don't submit to his authority. All right. Bring it in here. A few minutes. Let's let's make some application. Do, do we need these principles today? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We need, we need to, to be reminded that, that we, we need these three legs on this stool. We can't, just, we can't just let one of them go. We need the principle of edification. As we come together, we need to come each Lord's Day aiming to encourage and build up one another so that we, are all, that we all learn and are all encouraged, just as he says in verse 31. We need the principle of order. We need to seek appropriate order in our relationships with one another, in our gatherings, and in the way that we prefer one another and give place to one another when we come together. We need the principle of authority firmly in place that, what, that we, we're to embrace apostolic truth. We're to bend our knee to the Lord's directives and commands as we gather. And so what would, what would Paul say along these lines to Baraka Bible Church in 2021? Um, would we come under this kind of chastisement that the Corinthians faced? What would he say? Is there, is there one of the three legs of this worship stool that's maybe a little wobblier than the others or a little weaker than others? Just keep that in mind. I want to I read a, uh, actually a, something that another pastor, a, an Irish pastor, so in a very different context, but he, uh, Ed, Ed Donnelly, uh, it's a skilled expositor. I, I've benefited from his ministry over the years and hearing his preaching. But he's in a, he's in a different setting, in a very traditional um, Irish subdued kind of church setting. And so this is, this is kind of him making some application in a, in a message on worship in a different context. But I, I, I think this is maybe helpful for us. He says, these are abuses in the worship of God, talking about the Corinthian fellowship. They're serious and they're damaging. And the Corinthian worship was not what it should have been. I hope that we all agree with that. But at least there was spiritual life. At least there were people who knew God and loved God and wanted to worship Him. I let me just pause there. I I didn't. I I had this in my notes, but I just realized that he he speaks to them as brothers. Do you notice that? How frequently in this section he says that they're brothers. He is not. This is not the scold of of an enemy. This is this is the love of a friend, a, a brother in Christ that's coming alongside another another fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging them. And so it's not all wrong. It's not all bad. But he says, at least these were people who knew God, loved God, and wanted to worship Him. Their spiritual energy was certainly leading them too far. We acknowledge that. But at least they had spiritual energy. And there is something far worse than a disorderly, overly noisy, confused meeting of Christians. And that is a meeting where there is a cold decorum of spiritual death where everything is so peaceful and so orderly and so quiet, but there is little life, little zeal, little passion and longing for God. There is nothing that would disturb you. There is nothing that would alarm you. But sometimes there's just nothing. And I would suggest that churches of our type are far more liable to that extreme than to the extreme of overenthusiasm. Surely, friends, it's a bad thing when churches that are cold and apathetic and listless in their Christian life, Laodicea, uh, <coughs> when they're that, 
and, and service have, have the nerve to criticize the ex- excesses of people who, are at least, who at least are alive for God. It would be all too tempting and too easy for us to sit in our staidness and in our formality and in our traditionalism and look at those people and say, here's your Irish, tut tut, those noisy, disorderly people, decently and in order. And might Christ not come to us sometimes and say, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I, I landed on this. Now, of course, I, and he goes on to make this point. The, the, the point is not to choose one extreme or the other and to pinball between. No, that's not it. I'm not suggesting our church is in one of these extremes or the other. That's not my point. But, but we have to work for the proper balance in our coming together. That it's orderly. And there's appropriateness and there's reverence and, and it's edifying when we come together and it's and we aim for clarity and understanding and consideration of others and intelligibility and we're we're speaking to the mind. Yes, but at the same time in our coming together, there must be a place for participation by all. And and for every member to make a meaningful contribution and, and we must have a place for spontaneity. For things that are not planned, for the pastor to tap on your shoulder and say, read this in another language right before the service. Uh, but, but for things which are unexpected, we must have the freedom to do something different, to be open where the Spirit is leading us. Those are not contradictory. So we should seek to have both when we come together. And listen, this is why we have different gatherings as a church family. Uh, uh, that, that, our Lord's Day services, they're, they are, they're more structured. They're more formal by design. Hopefully they're not stiff and stodgy and rigid or anything like that. That's not what we're aiming for. But this is the place where we receive the Lord's authority, authoritative teaching from His Word. We come together and we worship the Lord together on the Lord's Day as He's called us to, being led by, by appointed leaders of the church. That's what we do when we come together. This is... I know in our day, in our day, there's just this unbridled informality in everything, isn't there? And and so I think it's important to keep these meetings and, and to keep this this principle of orderliness. I think it does speak to us today as we come in our gatherings. But on the other hand, we have other gatherings. We have Sunday school with children to youth and adults, and this is the less formal time, and it allows for more spontaneity and allows for discussion and questions and and prayer, and, 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 it, and it's, it's suited for that. We have our Sunday night prayer meetings. and Many of you are coming to those. And we have men and women pleading together before the throne of grace. And, and, and so it's open, wide open, to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit as we come. And, and it's wonderful. It's less structured. We have small groups. And these are more opportunities for informality and spontaneity. And it's not a free-for-all, but there's, there's, there's a lot more freedom and less structure and discussion and sharing experiences and teaching one another and sharing with one another and praying for one another and very personal matters that we might not do in the larger gathering and, and, and laughing together and weeping together and relaxing together and sharing burdens with one another, all these kinds of things. We Lots of participation. There's midweek youth meetings and there's men's and ladies Bible studies and again, less formality, more spontaneity, a different ethos than our Sunday gathering. There, there are those one-on-one times where men and women, just men and men, two men meet together, two women meet together, a little group of guys, group of ladies, and they're 
have open Bibles and they're praying for one another, they're sharing burdens with one another. That's that's great. There are social occasions like we have this evening, our spring fellowship, and just just to just to talk and hang out together. All these different gatherings. And if and if you don't already, you should avail yourself to these different kinds of comings together in the church. This is how we benefit from the full range of Christian worship and and fellowship and body life. Now, if you only come to the Sunday gathering, now listen, if you if you can only do one for whatever reason, if you're prohibited another, this is the one you should come to. There is no substitute for the Lord's Day gathering of His church. There's this, this is on a different level. Um, but, but if that's all it is, if that's the full extent of your involvement in the church, you're, 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 you're coming together with the church will be rather formal in structure. It's by nature. And so you'll miss out on much of the other. I'm not, this is not a scold. This is an invitation to say there's more. And that both are good and both are needed. So we, we will miss out on having your input and your participation if this is the full extent of your involvement. And you have gifts and you have, you have contributions to make to the wider church family. So all, the, all of these things we plan, they're for the building up of the body. And I don't, and again, I don't mean to heap guilt on anyone for missing a church meeting. This is not like a scorecard where how many meetings did you go through this month and your little boxes to check. That's not it. But what compels us, it's love. It's love. It's a desire for the mutual, mutual benefit, the mutual upbuilding that comes when we sing together, when we pray together, when we talk together, when we share together, when we serve together, when we teach one another, when we encourage one another, when we when we minister to one another. I know this is a weird time as a church. This last year has been. And I'm mindful of that. This has been a weird year. And so our gathering, listen, for most of us, our gathering muscles are pretty weak right now. They lack definition and tone. I mean, even to come back on Sunday nights to these prayer meetings, I confess, I'm really used to just having finished preaching, go take my long nap and just kind of take it easy and to the thought of coming back. But it's so good. It's so good. It takes my muscles are weak, like like probably all of us. And so it's it's not it's not <coughs> it's not about um, gathering for the sake of getting busier again and trying to do all these different things. It's for the sake of building up the gather. So let's resolve not to cheat ourselves, not to cheat one another by missing out. The opportunities are there. They're there for you. you, you we need you there for, for us, for them. And so for, are there areas that you've been missing out? Missing out or, or people have been missing out on your contribution. There's some things I think this prompts us to. But again, listen, what compels us? What compels us to come together it's not guilt. It's not over guilt over not measuring up to, to some quota of church gatherings at the pastor's lair and army or something like that. It's not it. It's not a desire to earn God's approval or His favor in our life. It's not to make ourselves look good to others and compare, hey, I'm coming more than you. I didn't even see you at that thing. Or I even came to, to this you know, thing on early in the morning. That's not it. What really should drive us to come together is the work that Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. And I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 10. This is where I'm going to tie it together and then we're done. It's not fear and duty. That's not what should drive us and compel us. That's not what Paul is saying here. It's thankfulness. 
It's a sense of desperation, humble desperation, that I, I need something that I don't have in myself. I need, I need Christ, and he, he ministers to me through the body. That's how we're built up together. As we live in this time between the, the finished work of Christ at the cross and, and His second coming, we, we're in this, this in-between time. It's already not yet time. And, the, and this, is, this is why we need it. And so this is what the writer of Hebrews does. Look how he grounds it all in this exhortation that comes couched with this gospel-dripping language. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. It's not do this so you can have access. No, it's done. Christ has done it all through His blood. The way is open. That is through His flesh. And since we now have a great priest over the house of God, He is always interceding on our behalf. Not depending on how you quiet time went in the morning. Not depending on how many gatherings you went to. He is there. We have this high priest. What does He say? Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, we're clean. In Christ, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider, here's the language, how to stir up one another to love and good works, edification. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what drives us, church. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that, that, that we, as we understand the glories of Jesus Christ and what you have done in opening the way for us and, and, and through your blood and, 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 and opening for us through the curtain of your flesh this access we have to you. And since we have a high priest, oh, I pray that we would draw near, that we would hold fast, that we would consider, think about how we might stir one another up to love and good works, and we would not neglect coming together as a church, but would encourage one another, and all the more as the day of your return approaches, Lord. And so, Father, give, give us um, a, a compulsion in us, Lord, not, again, prompted out of duty or of guilt, but out of joy and delight and desperation, Father, and thankfulness for what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing together.